0: Good evening. Well, welcome back to our Wednesday night series on entitled Questions. Uh, if you recall, we had our introduction last week, and it was uh, the introduction to the series, and the title of the message was Questions. If you recall, we talked about why does Jesus, who's our Lord, our Savior, who knows everything there is to know about us, why is Jesus asking Questions. Well, if you recall, in the four points asked you remember throughout this series is he asks us questions because he loves and cares for us. He asks us questions because he wants to have a conversation with us. He asks us questions because of self-discovery. And most of all, he asks questions because of the element of choice. Tonight, our question is, who do you say I am? Turn your Bibles to Matthew 16, verse 13. And God's word says, When Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say that thou art John the Baptist, some say Elias, and others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But he saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? Heavenly Father, Lord, I just ask you this evening, Lord, to be with us, to speak to our hearts through your word. Father, I ask that you just set me aside and and you preach this message to your children tonight, God, that it be an encouragement, that it might enlighten us just a little bit, but it boost our spirit and strengthen us in our walk with you and that it draw us ever closer to the cross, Lord, that it draw ever closer to you, our Savior, that draw us ever closer to the Father, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You know, when I was a child, there was a funny game show on that we used to watch in the evening. Now, I know I'm, I'm not this old. Uh, it was called What's My Line, And it actually came on and started in 1953, and, and I'm not that old, but but it ran for many, many, many years. And there's a few of you in here old enough to maybe even remember when it started. I I don't know, but I'm not quite there. Uh, They had a panel of stars blindfolded. And then a famous person, a celebrity, an inventor, a politician or somebody would walk in unannounced and they would sign their name upon the chalkboard. And that that was the big moment when they signed that name on the chalkboard. The the audience knew who they were and they cheered and everything for, for the celebrity. But it was the panel's job to ask questions and try to figure out the very best they could who it was. It was funny to see such famous people as Doris Day, Clint Eastwood, Joe, DiMont- Joe DiMaggio. Uh, I looked it up. I mean, there were there were several hundred stars and well-known people, famous people that had been on the show. I mean, that list, it went from Eddie Albert to Frank Zappa. I mean, that I, I covers people from from in their 70s all the way down to people in their teens know who Frank Zappa was. And here they were just feet from the panel. Answering their questions, and yet so often the panel either could not figure out who it was or it took them a very long time. I mean, even a lady, a lady in her time that was probably the most famous and loved first lady this country has ever had, Eleanor Roosevelt, she appeared on that show, and only one person on that panel, after a pretty good length of time, was able to figure out who she actually was. These verses in question, but whom say ye that I am? It, th- this question comes at a pivotal point, a transitional point in Jesus' life, and Jesus' ministry. And the disciples walk with Jesus. Just before he asked this question, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they, they asked for a miracle. They asked to see a miracle. They asked to see a sign from heaven to show who Jesus was. They said, show us a sign. Show us a miracle. If you're the Son of God, show us a miracle. Show us a sign to prove it. Jesus tells them, he says, you're educated enough. You're intelligent enough that you can predict the weather by the signs of the sky. A red sky at night. It means it's going to be a pretty day the next day. A red sky in the morning means it's going to be stormy. He says, you can tell the weather by these things, and yet you cannot recognize the Son of God. You cannot recognize the Son of God. Jesus says that that kind of skepticism, that kind of misbelief, it affects everybody it touches. It's like a disease. It affects everybody that it touches. It blinds them. And Jesus is warning his disciples about it when he asked them, who do you say I am? It's an important question. It's, it's, it's an, the, the timing of this question is important. Think about it. Those men had been walking with Jesus side by side by side for a couple years now. And it was very important. They'd been seen as miracles. They they had been learning and sitting down and hearing Jesus teach to them directly. But it was important that he asked this question because they had to know and understand who he was and what lay ahead to come in the very near future. You see, from this point forward, Jesus began preparing them for his entry into Jerusalem, for his arrest, for his betrayal, for his death. He asked him that question, who do you say I am? In fact, in these verses, he asked two questions. Who do you say I am? But he also asked, who do men say that I am? Can I tell you something very important? Every one of us, every man, woman, and child that has heard the gospel has to answer that question at some point in their lifetime. They've got to. You You have to answer. That question is asked of you at some point in your lifetime, and you have to answer it. Who do you, who do you, who do you say he is? He's asking that question and they don't just ask it, he doesn't just ask it at the point of salvation. Even if you've accepted him, even if you're a born again Christian, he asks that question throughout, our, throughout your life because you tend to forget who he is. You tend to forget who it is that saved you. You tend to forget who it is that's working in your life and, and he'll ask you that question Time and time again. And Holy spirits I mean, we're talking about it. It should be asking you that question within your own hearts right now. Who do you say that Jesus is? Who is he in your life? Our answers today and the many answers today are the exact same answers and different answers that have been given since that time all the way to this time by different people. And it's basically three answers. Some answers, like the Pharisee answered, there's no sign from heaven, there's no miracle from God, therefore there is, you are not the Son of God. Today, the way we word that answer, we word it that he's a fictional character. He is a fable that's been handed down from generation to generation to generation to try to control people or to try to make people behave or to try to do this or to try to do that. And it's it's just a story that's handed down. It's not the truth. I mean, think about it. We're we're 2,000 years down the road past that. There's many people who really believe that Jesus was just a fictional character. But I want to tell you first this evening that Jesus did exist. He did exist. He he walked this earth just as surely as you walked through the front doors of this church this evening. When Jesus asked the question, he prefaces it with, Who do men say that I the Son of Man in? You see, Jesus was all God and all man. The Son of Man was his human side. The Son of God was his God side. The historical evidence that Jesus presence and walked on this earth that he existed is overwhelming considering it was over 2,000 years ago it's just as present as historical now I'm not talking about I'm not talking about Uh, religious things i'm not talking but i'm talking about pure historical evidence no no different than any other historical evidence for any other person in history the evidence that jesus walked this earth is more present than most of the men and most of the people and most of the famous people in history that we readily accept today existed it's more present that that he existed However, I mean, we have no trouble accepting the fact that a person like Nero walked this earth. But yet we refuse to accept the fact that Jesus did. You have Christian writers. The entire New Testament... The entire New Testament referring to, talking to, talking about Jesus, talking about the things he did, talking about the sermons he taught, he taught, talking about the events that happened to him, the crucifixion, the trials, things of that nature, talking about the men that walked with him. You have all of this evidence written by all these different writers. You can't get much more historical evidence than that. Is the Bible, just because it is Bible, any less accepted than the, than the carved stonings of Egypt that say the pharaohs existed were existed? Is it any less accepted than the scrolls of the Roman Empire that that says Nero and the other emperors existed? No. It's just as valid it's, it's historically. It's, it's just as important. It, it, and, in fact, there's even more witnesses than there is for most of those men. Non-Christian writers. Non-Christian writers. Historians have written about Jesus and his existence on this earth. In 59 AD, Josephus, he was a Roman Jewish scholar. Josephus had at least two references in his writings about Jesus. Pliny and Tacitus, they are Roman politicians. They held some of the highest offices in the Roman government. The people who hated Christians, the people who crucified Christians, the people who fed Christians to the lions, that's them. And yet they detailed in their writings, they detailed in their historical documents the crucifixion of Jesus by Pilate. Imagine that. In fact, if you look at the evidence today in its totality, there is more evidence that Jesus existed than other famous people in history we readily accept walked this earth. Have you ever heard of the philosopher Socrates? Very famous. Uh, You can't study philosophy or anything like that in college without studying about about Socrates. Do you realize Socrates never wrote anything down? The only reason we believe and trust that Socrates even existed is because of the writings of a few philosophers that were underneath him that referred to him. And yet we readily accept and, and study him in colleges all over America, all around this world of, uh, of his great philosophy and, and how he was on this earth. But what about Jesus? What about Jesus? He existed. There's no doubt in it. Second, some people today acknowledge that, that Jesus did exist, that he did walk this earth. In other words, they acknowledge him as a son of man. They accept that historical evidence we just talked about. But they don't accept the fact he's the son of God. They accept him as that historical figure. But they refuse to accept the evidence about his deity. About his deity being both God and man. To overcome this belief, there's only one thing that you have to look at. The resurrection. So, the only thing you have to look at is the resurrection. Man has never and never will be able to resurrect himself can't do it best way for me I'm, i I could probably preach and teach on the resurrection from now until my death all the details and the different things trying to prove the resurrection to you I'm going to keep it in short order tonight I'll refer to Lee Strobel he's a modern day investigative reporter and was an atheist a total atheist You may be familiar with it. He ended up writing the book, A Case for Christ. It was made into a movie just a few years ago. I think it's even playing on Netflix right now. Amen. But... He, took, he looked at all of the evidence and he realized that after his wife became a Christian, after she became born again and he followed it and he followed it and, and, and he argued with her about it. And I mean, it was causing a problem in their marriage. And he finally decided he was going to put all of his investigative skills to the test. And, he, and the only thing he had to prove, everything about Jesus Christ, everything about trusting in his deity tied to disproving the resurrection. And he investigated it. He investigated all the historical evidence more in depth than what I've gone into tonight. He investigated the medical evidence about the crucifixion and how it affects the body and all of those things. And and he came to only one conclusion. Jesus Christ was both man and God. And he was born again. And he was born again. He, he, He had no choice but to accept the fact That Jesus Christ was the Son of God and that He came to this earth to die for our sin. You think about it. In short order, I'm not going to list all the different things, but here are just a few things about the crucifixion that would have had to happen. Think about the broken Roman seal. you realize breaking that seal was a death penalty offense? And the Roman Empire, the breaking of that Roman seal, it brought down the strictest, it brought down the most harsh type of investigation of looking into, of finding out who did it when a seal like that is broken. And the punishment for breaking a Roman seal like that was death. And yet, the disciples at this point in time, the disciples after they laid Jesus in the tomb, where were the disciples? They were huddled together scared. Peter had denied Christ three times. They were terrified of being arrested already. They were terrified of being picked up and persecuted or crucified like their Lord had just been crucified. They were terrified of this. There is no way, there is no way any of those followers, no way any of those disciples would have gone to that tomb and broken that seal. There's no way being that terrified. Second, over 500 eyewitnesses at one time did Jesus appear to after his death, after his resurrection. Not just the 12, over 500. And remember, these people, including the 12, they are their testimony about seeing Jesus resurrected oftentimes resulted in their torturous death. Nobody tells a lie to be crucified. Nobody tells a lie to be beheaded. Nobody tells a lie to be put in with the lions. You just don't do it. One person maybe might be stubborn enough, but not all. You think of all the people and all the Christians who testified of Jesus' resurrection and seeing the resurrected Jesus and how they were crucified and how they were tortured and how they were beaten and how they were how they were killed. And there's no way you carry those things to that kind of punishment. You don't carry a lie to that kind of punishment. The empty tomb. Do you realize that a lie about the resurrection? wouldn't have been carried out for even an hour in Jerusalem if the tomb had not really been empty. My goodness, you can't have a a tornado come through a mile of area in the county without drawing a thousand people out there to to look at it. If the tomb hadn't been empty, somebody would have known the tomb wasn't empty. You wouldn't have been able to carry that out. You had the Roman guards that went AWOL. You had the grave clothes that were left behind. Just point after point after point to prove our resurrection. Finally, you either say that he was a fictional character or a fable. Or you say that he was a historical person. For this final point, I just want you to close your eyes. I want you to bow your head for just a few minutes and take a deep breath. And I want you to listen. You say he's either a fictional character or a historical person and denies deity. Or, when you hear verses like these, For John so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. But God commendeth his love toward us, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. For by the grace are you saved through faith. Not that of yourselves, it's it's the gift of God, not of works lest any man would boast. Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me have everlasting life and shall not come unto condemnation, but is passed from let death unto life. When you hear those verses, when you hear those verses, just as Jesus said to Peter in verse 17, or verses, Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. When you hear those verses and God Almighty and the Holy Spirit Himself, He opens your mind and understanding. He splits open your heart with that two-edged sword of His Word, of the cross. All of a sudden, you open your eyes. You open your eyes and you can see the cross because the Holy Spirit has led you there. God has revealed it to you just who Jesus is. You're standing and you're looking up at the Son of God who gave His life for you. You're looking up at the crown of thorns that are that are upon His head. You're looking up at the nail pierced hands and the feet. You're looking up at His pierced side. You're looking up at that blood covered cross. I once heard a preacher say it. It only took one drop of blood to wash me clean, but I'm going to here to tell you it took every drop of blood to wash me clean it took every drop of blood it took every bit of blood he had to wash the sin from this earth it took every drop of blood he had to wash us clean to wash that stain of sin it took every beautiful drop i'm closing i'm about to close but i want you to listen real carefully to this this is what i've been preparing you for this whole message I spoke earlier that these verses came at a transitional point in Jesus' life, in his ministry. It, it came at a point to transform the disciples from walking with him in the flesh to preparing for life to walking with him in the spirit. They had to know who Jesus was in order to accept the radical transformation that was to come the life, the death, the resurrection. They had to know who he was in order to accept that. You need to know who he is. You need to accept who he is in order to receive and accept the radical transformation that God wants to do in your life. You got to know. You got to trust it. You got to have faith in it. And it's not a transformation unto perfection but a transformation under redemption. Yes, these, verses, these verses contain everything we need to know, everything you've got to have for a radical transformation to take place in your life. Verse 16, Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's Jesus Christ at the cross. That's the cross. That's all you need is the cross. Verse 18, he goes down and he says, And I say unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not tear it down, shall not prevail against it. The cross, Jesus and the cross, and the church, those are the two things. It's the only two things you've got to have. It's the only two things you have to accept. It's the only two things you've got to surrender to and be a part of in order to radically transform your life. You say, the church, the cross. I've put over my 30 years as a parole officer, I've probably put hundreds of people into treatment. Inpatient treatment, outpatient treatment, 12-step based treatment, psychological best treatment, whatever based treatment, the, whatever fad treatment that, with a fancy name they're giving it this week kind of treatment. And I can tell you in all honesty, if I went back and reviewed every case, there probably isn't five of them. I could probably count them on one hand, the people that were helped. Helped for a lifetime. But the cross, the cross and Jesus Christ has cured more than I can name. You can't kneel at the cross. You can't kneel at the cross and cast your fears, cast your hurts. Cast your pains, cast your faults, cast your sin upon Jesus and not be healed. Not be radically transformed. You sit here as a skeptic and you say, I know plenty of people that say they got born again and yet they're right back on that bar stool six months later. I know plenty of people that say they were born again and yet they're back using drugs a year later. I know plenty of people that say they're born again and yet they're out in this world doing what it is they want to do and they're not living like a Christian. And I say, you're absolutely right. So have I. But that's where the church comes in. That's where the church comes in. I'm not, I'm not saying it's the, the church is the second part of that because I want to fill these seats. I'm not saying that because... We want to fill our coffers or we want your money. It's the church because that's the way Jesus ordered it to be. It's the way he ordered it to be. While your salvation secures you, it secures you for an eternity. It secures you to heaven. It secures your eternal life the moment that you accept Jesus Christ. But without the church, that transformation, that transformation while present will not be seen and will not be evidenced within your life. It might be for a short time, but without the discipleship of the church, without the fellowship of the church, without the love of the church, without the the relationships that you have in the church, the worshiping, the praying, the, the, the reading of God's Word, the studying of God's Word, the fellowshipping together, that transformation will not grow. That transformation will not take hold. That transformation will not grow and draw you closer to God. It will not stay with you. Your salvation will stay with you, but that trial transformation will not. I can't tell you how many people I know that have left out of church and in no time at all they are living the exact same life they lived before they accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior. And I don't know if you ever got the record button to work back here or not, but if you did, I'll edit this out. I know folks that have left our family within the last few weeks, and I talked to one of them the other night. and I've known them for seven years, and I love them. But it was almost like I didn't even recognize them when I talked to them on the telephone. I, who, who was this? I looked at my wife when I hung up, and I said, Who was this person I just talked to? And they haven't been gone a month and it breaks your heart. The cross and the church together is what continues to bind you. When you cast those cares, when you cast those burdens, and you cast those sins upon Jesus and the cross, and you accept Him as your, as your, as your Savior, okay, you are saved for an eternity, and that transformation happens. But you've got, you, you, you got to replace all that bad. With something good. You, you gotta fill that void. That's the church. That's the love. That's the fellowship that the church provides. James says it better than I ever could. 217. Even so faith, if it hath not works, is dead. Being alone. Being alone. When your faith is alone, you might be saved, but your faith in God to work in your life. Your faith in God to lead and guide you. Your faith in God to help heal you through, through, through mourning. To help heal you through illness. To help heal you through troubles. To help light your path and, and make you successful and joyful. Your faith in all of that is dead. It, it's not there. So you're so susceptible to put on those old clothes. To fall back into that old sin even though you're a child of God. Forgiven saved, eternal life, but you sure don't have that joyful life, that wonderful life that God wants you to have here. Through, brother.